Datfella2000 recently wrote a review on Apple Podcasts titled Thoughtful Perspectives on Today's Learning. I'm always learning something new when I tune in. No such thing does a great job bringing in a range of researchers, practitioners, and youth voices, each with unique and insightful perspectives on the education system. And Mark always brings out spirited and thought-provoking dialogue in each episode. I really appreciate this show. And I really appreciate Datfella2000. If you have something you'd like to advertise on an upcoming episode, Datfella2000, get in touch via links on nosuchthingpodcast.org. You're next in line for the raffle I promised I'd run a few episodes ago. If you're a first-time or maybe a regular listener, I have an exciting announcement. In my continued commitment to make no money from you, this show will continue to be free to you as long as I can make it work. The only thing I ask is to help me game the algorithm by getting onto Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded the show and give it a five-star rating. A review is icing on the cake. It makes me realize that there are people out there who appreciate the work. Let's convince the podcasting machines obsessed with celebrity side projects and self-help that learning in the digital age is a topic worth pushing to the top of the charts. Thanks for all you do to support the work. Let's get started with the show. Here's an audio clip for you. So we gotta coach some map reduce. Seize up gates down and all your code is fast and loose. Learning great ideas in computer architecture. <laughs> Lay back. Put my mind on my coding and the coding on my mind. Learning great ideas in computer architecture. Lay back. Put my mind on my coding and the coding on my mind. Your teachers have rapped to you about the topics they're passionate about, right? Me neither. I've had some really good teachers, but meeting Dan Garcia made me wish I could be his student. He gave me the feeling that as an educator, his enthusiasm for not just the subject, but the practice of teaching his subject is unmatched. What do you do as a tenured professor at one of, if not the most, elite public universities in the country after having broken records, won awards as an educator, and founded the most recognized curriculum for learning computer science in the country? Turn to solving even bigger challenges. At least, that's what Dan Garcia is up to. It's delightful to be here. Uh, my name is Dan Garcia. I'm a teaching professor at UC Berkeley. I use the he, him pronouns. I grew up in New York City, went to grade school in PS94 in the Bronx, did well in math, fell in love with math, uh, got a little taste of computer science, fell in love with that, uh, did well enough to get into MIT, um, fell in love with teaching um, when I was there, and graphics, and said like, wow, what can I do graphics and teaching, and uh, applied to Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley in the West Coast, never really got, never visited California really. Um, went to a Grateful Dead show the year before I applied to Berkeley and I said, wait, this is January and it's, I'm in shorts. This is amazing. Let me, let me have a conversation about maybe coming out here. So applied to Berkeley, got in. Uh, again, the teaching bug bit me. Uh, I, I ended up teaching um, 16 classes uh, as a GSI, as a graduate student instructor at Berkeley. Uh, and I'm told, someone told me, and you know, they looked it up at some point, they said, I set the record. So Berkeley's like 154 years old and nobody's ever taught, no one had ever taught more than 
16 courses as a graduate student because you're not supposed to there's a rule that says you're supposed to stop teaching after five years but nobody had ever you know even gotten close to that so i was teaching for six years like wait i think he's past some limit Uh oh <laughs> by the time they realized it was too late i've been i had bought 16 courses so i just i love teaching uh i've been doing it you know since since a grad since a graduate program in 90 so i've been here for you know, 33 years um, and and absolutely love Berkeley. Absolutely love working with this. You know the scale of, of, of and the impact we have at Berkeley. It's just an outstanding program. But but part of what I hope we're going to talk about today is I realized I was doing it wrong. I was you know I, I, I've had an epiphany that's in professional development and I'm like well, I can't believe it. I've been you know everyone's to say hey again Dan what would you tell your younger self? Yeah you're doing it wrong. Dan talks about the progress in computer science education in the U.S. and what he thinks comes next in that story for us to truly succeed helping narrow the gap between those who compute and those who will only ever be users. We dig into his passion for grading equity and his mission to share what he feels he might have done wrong as a professor for too long. Outside of Dan Garcia as something of an icon in the computer science education world, I'll say this. I hung up feeling so grateful that this show has introduced me to such incredible humans, people whose intellect and spirit give me tremendous hope that the road we're on is one that can lead us into whatever good light you dream about. Have you heard the term clobber grading? You're about to. Here's Dan Garcia. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I'm so excited to have you here. And yeah. uh, so before we get into some of that, tell me about your education experience as a kid. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's funny. I... It's it's almost not worth reporting. It's just I, I like math and I and I and I I did okay in math and and I just kind of followed. The, it's almost like I, you know, I when I mentor students I use the analogy of of river of a river and when you're an undergrad and you're and you're in high school you're just following the river. You're not really swimming. You're not really look, needing to find your own path. You're just kind of following the current. Um, and then you get to graduate school and you got to kind of learn how to swim. <laughs> it's like wait I'm here if I if I don't do anything I got you know I got to find a find a major find a find a, a project to work on. Um, so I was basically just following the current. You know, I just liked math and wanted to do more of it and wanted to explore as much as I could, like puzzles. Um, kind of a geeky guy, you know. I taught myself Rubik's cube and juggling and all that stuff. So I, it's almost non-remarkable. Uh, you know, I want to focus on other things. You know, today talking about some stuff, but it's I just followed the path, did well in math, got into yeah. college, MIT, did well in math, and and fell in love with graphics and teaching, and then got into grad school. Love teaching enough to be able to get it, you know, get a job as a teaching professor. So it's it's less about. But here's the thing: I, I, as we're talking about reflecting on that, there's a couple things that I, I want to share that I'm going to dovetail back into the, the later conversation, which is one of the things that was always a trouble for me is that I wrote very slowly, mm. and I took exams very slowly. So if I'm in lecture, back in the day they had no handouts. They had you just you know the model was I'm going to write on the board and you follow me and I'm going to talk out loud and talk through problems. And I was always and, and by the way, this is a, a model where they had transparency, so they'd be with transparency, and they'd pull the transparency over. And I'm trying to just copy. I'm not. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm struggling to both listen, understand, and copy, just because in case I forget it. This is my only record of it because there was a book, but no, there was no. Other. So I'm trying to. This is my only record, and and so I'm kind of a pay. I'm kind of a slide behind. And <laughs> I remember, you know, they would turn to the next slide, and I would go, Oh, I just missed it. Like, mm. I just. I was. I almost. You know, I just had. There was one more paragraph and one more equation. Oh, I just missed it. And that would happen over and over again hmm. where I would, oh, if I just, I just missed that one. <laughs> and so I realized when I taught, 
I got to have handouts. I, everything that I'm going to show you in slide deck or on the board, I'm going to have also as a handout. So if you're like me and write a little slower, maybe think a little slower, eventually you get it. But if you have a different way of processing the data, I'm not going to make my presentation the source of trouble for you. I'm going to mm. give you those resources. So that's one, you know, in terms of that experience, high school was fine. College, college was always, always behind the notes. And in exams, I would always be the last kid to pass the exam in. And it wasn't that I didn't get it. It's just that I, I work a little slower. Yeah. Um, and that has always, I mean, I would say I did well enough to get where, I'm, where I am, but it's, it's like, I remember those moments and I really wanted to change that too. And, and I didn't really think I could, you know, because I inherit a course, you know, first, okay, welcome, Dan, you're a teaching professor now, assistant, you know, go ahead, mm. you're a lecturer, go ahead, do the. And I mostly inherit everything. You know, you kind of just treat the course as immovable. And I wiggled it here and wiggled it there and added some interesting thing, but I, I never thought that I could. It's almost like take a V8, right? Hit yourself on the head. I never realized I could change the grading structure. I could change uh. the exam structure. I could give more time. I, I didn't have to push people as hard as I did in terms of, well, if people are still writing at the end of the exam, that's good. No, that's crazy. That's good. You want an empty room at the end of the exam. So right. that's a lot of the ahas I've had were based on that experience of me both being a little slower note taker, a little slower exam taker. Yeah. So, so okay. Um, there's a lot to unpack. But let me ask this. I spent the last couple of weeks knowing that we were going to talk, reviewing conversations that you've had previously and presentations you've given and what I knew of you before we met over email through a mutual friend um, is Dan Garcia, beauty and joy guy. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I, I, I think of you and now your personality is, is, um, filling in gaps for me about beauty and joy. But what you just mm. described is a, a little bit of, of friction and struggle between the institutional, you know, process of becoming a student and mm. your own style and, 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 you know, uh, way your own mind thought. Right. Mm. And so there are some people that from that, and I, I have, uh, I have three kids of my own and I, I know many learners at the moment, including myself, mm -hmm. some people come at those points of friction and do not, do not find beauty and joy. They find a lot of struggle and not certainly not a long graduate career and then teaching. Mm -hmm. You found beauty and joy. And so the thing I was really curious about, um, not that, you know, the, the title of the a curriculum that you co-developed um, as a as a professor that you're probably most famous for is everything about your journey. But mm. if it, when I'm thinking about you as beauty and joy of computing, um, what from your early education experience do you think, was it just innate? Or do you think that there were things in your learning environment, people or discovery or a way of learning that helped you realize that even though that struggle was there, even though that you were coming to things a little bit differently, that there was still this mission to like give other learners who were experiencing this beauty and joy. Like where did, mm -hmm. how did you arrive at that? Mm -hmm. Sure. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think it starts that I, I really love the subject. I just really love, Math, CS, 
problems. I love mm. making exams. I just, I love that spirit. And actually, I'll step back and say, it surprises me how many other faculty don't put as part of the learning goals to have fun. Mm. I don't go do a do a Google search and find it, find where joy or beauty or fun is in anybody's curriculum. Yeah. It's not there. Um, Seymour Piper talks about hard fun, um, and that's what we have put into B, you know, BJC Beauty and Joy. As we say, this is going to be boy, your, your mind is going to expand in many different ways, and sometimes it's going to be really hard, um, and you're going to have struggle. And there's there's a difference between productive struggle and unproductive struggle. Um, productive struggle is is it's almost like if I gave you a, a, a puzzle. You know, it's kind of like a, a logic brain puzzle. I just said, take away as a gift and walk away with it. And 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 there's no need to 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 give me an answer. This is just a gift mm. of mine to you. Here's a fun puzzle. Um, there are days where you're not going to make a, a moment of progress on that puzzle. Okay, I just can't crack it. Mm. But then, like, wait, oh, you know, you'll wake up in the morning you're in the shower, like, ah, aha, and you have this, like, oh, this is that's so beautiful. The way yeah. that kind of it unpacks itself for kind of you know, it's almost like these these wooden puzzles that oh wait, it just turns it a certain way. So. I think it comes from, I've always had fun learning this material, not everything, right? But but I really enjoyed the journey. And I'm, as I, I want to add myself to the list of learners on this conversation. Mm-hmm. Every day I'm, you know, making mistakes and learning and how to be a better, better, better educator, better parent, better, better you know, spouse, all that. So thinking about and, and, and really asking the stepping back and asking, why is it that none of None of many of my colleagues, not just at Berkeley, many colleagues globally don't put fun as the goal of learning. Like you should be coming in and the kid and you should be having a smile. Like, why isn't the spirit of this to be high fiving each other? Like as we get these things. And so I really uh, had a had a wonderful uh, experience. I had some great teachers. I'm going to call out my, my, my former favorite math teacher, Mr. White. I, I wrote a teaching page where I honored him. He passed away, but he was my calculus teacher, my basketball coach. He kind of put it all together for me. He helped me grow to become a, from a boy to a man. So, you know, he was, he was really wonderful. He was funny. You know, he was, he, but not, not, not over the top. His job was to be a comedian, but he just, you know, he brought a spirit of, of enjoyment to that. Mm-hmm. So I would front and really just enjoy the moments when I was around him. What a great mentor, what a big, great leader. So, it's, it wasn't that anybody ever explicitly did it. And I said, I want to be like that. It was that I, I drew enjoyment from it and I was enjoying myself. And I, and I, I, I don't take credit for the person to think about this hard fund, you know, I can see proper came with that idea, but the, the whole process of, of growing your, growing your brain, growing your, your knowledge and skill space is a wonderful process. That's, you know, I, I don't want to leave higher ed. I don't want to leave the education space. I volunteered in a high school for, for a year and really appreciated seeing what it's like. You know, here I am making this this college course, Beauty and Joy Computing. We've reached a thousand teachers. It's all around high school. But I wanted to see like, what what, what is it like on the ground? And so I volunteered um, at a local high school and really enjoy, and learned so much. Again, I'm learning so much every day when I'm taking these new experiences on. And I, I try to bring both in my own teaching and in the curriculum and in and in how I work with my graduate students and my undergrads helping to teach the course and with the K-12 teachers who work with us. We mm-hmm. also have a middle school curriculum. As much as we can, this should be fun. Like we're doing this. Yes, you're supposed to learn this stuff. But one of the things that's been a gift to me, and I'll just say I happen to have been placed in a, in, in a particular course structure of the courses I teach that neither of the courses I teach are required for entry to the CS major. Hmm. So I'm getting kids who are taking these courses really 
because they want to be there, not because they have to be there. A lot of folks, you know, my my you know my colleagues on the right of me, across much of me, are taking their teaching the courses, and thanks to them, that are part of the required set for majors. But I don't. So I, I happen to have a, a cohort of students who are coming, also coming at it, because they want to be there. And I think mm. that changes everything. I think so. It's it's we're gonna get I hope later to think how would I transform the the whole CS ecosystem. Um, what I want to say is in conflict with that because to change the CS ecosystem, I think one of the things we got to do is mandate CS for everybody. But all of a sudden that breaks the model I just said, which is the reason why CS is so much fun is it's choice. Yeah. So there's a whole tension between how I really want to move the needle K-12 nationally and what has worked for me, which is just come because you want to be here, not because you have to be there. So, um, so can I ask a question on yeah. that? So, in the last 15 years, your work has been such a huge contribution to computer science access in the U.S. Um, so I'm going to call it the CS access movement. Um, what do you think the most important shift has been coming out of the last 10 to 15 years and, and that movement toward uh access and these dynamics you talk about between mandating and self-motivating to joy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first I want to, I want to deflate my impact. I think the beauty and joy computing is one of, it's like a beautiful quilt. The CS for all and the CS 10 K movement is, is a partnership among hundreds, arguably thousands of powerful educators and curriculum writers who are doing this folks, uh, like Joanne, Joanne Good and Gail Chapman, who put the ECS mm -hmm. curriculum together. Um, leaders like Jan Cooney at the National Science Foundation funding all of these initiatives. Um, folks putting together CS principles as a new course, AP, to have national reach. So uh, the folks at co.org really, you know, training tens of hundreds of thousands of teachers. So wonderful folks there. So it's, it's first of all, it's not just, you know, there's one little drop in a, in a pool of folks who really deeply care about broadening participation mm -hmm. and really care about access and really care about reaching students who weren't being reached before. Really, yeah. that's the thing. So that awakening that we just, we can't keep sp spinning in higher ed thinking, well, let's just keep rearranging the deck chairs at our colleges and seeing that's going to make move the needle. It is, you got to get down in the weeds. You got to work with teachers. The Computer Science Teaching Association is a, is a group that's wonderful and they're kind of helping to form that community and can continue with this. So it is a lot of people. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is a lot. So is, Dan, what have you, you know, thank you for that, for that, that, that beginning of that, but that intro, but it really is that I'm just one small drop in, you know, arguably a hundred thousand people strong who care about reaching students and pushing that, pushing that forward. Um, so, so that, that said, what are some of the things that we've done? Like, like, as I look back, right, as, as I reflect yeah. on 15 years of it, right, this was really 15 years ago, Jan, I was sitting at the ACM Education Board and Jan, Jan Cooney came up and said, we got to work on K-12. You know, here, here we are thinking about how do we change our higher ed classes to do this and add more security. Blah, blah. We were doing things, but we weren't we were really addressing the real need, which is to look at, wow, how how are we not reaching the rest? Mm. The rest so many, you know, we certainly were thinking, well, you know, maybe if we made our classes more enticing, people would choose it at the higher ed level. That's not the place to fix it. You have to go earlier in the stage. And Jan, as I said, Cooney was really right all along. You've got to go to middle school and high school and do right there. You have to bring in a whole new. And if you look at some of the numbers that 
both through the College Board, both in terms of who's taking the APCSA, who's taking APCS principles. These two new courses, well, A, a is a little bit, you know, standard. It's been there for a while, but principles is a new thing. And I was part of that. I was part of the development committee. So I'm just so proud. Lynn Diaz, I mean, there's a lot of folks I could just name who are who I, I consider as having much more impact than me, my little drop of my little course, BJC, who have really made this course and made the foundation of what you want to learn in computer science at the K-12 level. You know, mm -hmm. what, what are the things you do in high school? What do you think they're trying to have a kid, trying to have um, a set of standards, right? This is, let's get to that in a, in a moment, hopefully. What kind of standards do you have so that I can't just teach, and this is what was happening, by the way, I can't just use Microsoft Word and PowerPoint and call it computer science. That was happening, which mm -hmm. is a little crazy. So it's like, what is, let's have, let's, let's have a level setting of, let's make sure we all understand what computer science is. And that actually is hard because there are a lot of folks who now were, are being told that CS is a different thing than they thought it was. And how do we get that, you know, aligned? So it's really, it's about a ton of professional development. How do we bring, to elevate the level of, of, of K-12 teachers to know more CS who might not have come through a CS pipeline? I happen to come through, you know, how many degrees in CS do I have, right? Now that people are on the on the front lines teaching CS who don't have that background. Right. So, so how do we get that? How do we share it in a gentle way and in a way that allows for a safe space, allows for them to understand that there's a growth opportunity and one and have them want to continue. We got to pay them enough. You know, like one of the things, if you step back as you, you think about both how, boy, it's, it's, it's how we, we devalue teaching at the K-12 level by, by not paying them what they're worth is, is the first part of that. And second, you think about how we're supporting structures of inequality that are persisting in that, the amount of money that a local school gets is the amount of money the local area around it puts into the property taxes. And how wrong that is, how if you didn't do anything, you got to flip it. Like you need to have the money from here goes there and the money from there goes here so that like it just doesn't. I mean, you, know, you look at New York City and you've got very different funding opportunities to schools. And then you look at the, the outcomes and you're like, wait, it's not surprising the outcomes of what they are. It's like if you wanted if you wanted to keep everyone in the same exact social economic space they were, you would do exactly what we do today, which is you'd fund schools based on the current amount of money in the pool of folks around them. That's what you do. Like, you know, if you don't want to have any mobility, mm -hmm. that's what you do. That's what we do. It's just a little insane. So we've got to fund schools better. We've got to pay teachers better. We've got to put our money where our mouth is. How about taking some money out of the defense budget and putting it towards teaching, right? You have, there'll be a great day when, what was the defense company has to have a bake sale to, to buy a bomber. Remember that poster from the seventies. So I think there's a lot of things we got to do. So I, stepping back, I'm just a small piece of the puzzle. There are many people who care about this, this initiative, the initiative I'll get back to the joy thing in a second. The initiative has seen a lot of progress and I'm really proud of all the work that our, you know, me and, and our team, but really mostly other people have done on the ground teaching teachers, on the ground teaching students, really trying to move the needle, understanding what it is to, to provide access to students who haven't had it before. Yeah. We are so far from being done. We've moved the needle a ton. We are so far from being done. Partly because you don't even crack the nut. You know, one of the things you look at is, is, how much? How many more students are getting access to this exam, to CS, to getting a taste of it, to realizing, wow, this is a thing for me. I didn't even realize it was out there. It's been, mm -hmm. you know, I, there's not even, a, there's not a teacher in my school. Like, look at how many 
schools in the United States don't even have a CS teacher, don't have APCS principals, don't have APCSA, don't have a fun robotics, have nothing, literally nothing. How many students there who could change and be the next Steve Jobs, be the next everything, and are never going to find their way to that path because they have no access, because they have no class there. So part of it is you got to mandate, there's got to be CS in every single school in this country. That's crazy. There's got to be solid, outstanding teachers in front of those. So we got to provide money to them so they can get that PD. We got to be in there. We don't even talk about how fast the turnover rate for teachers are. They burn out. You think think that the pandemic wasn't just a death blow to how many students said, I'm done. I'm mm-hmm. done teaching. I'm, I'm going to move on to something else. This is too hard. It is really hard to keep kids engaged when they don't turn their videos on. I mean, I have some of that too, but you know, when they... They just, it's real. That pandemic was hard on everybody, but boy, that, that pandemic hit the, the pool of teachers really hard. Mm. So you've got to have, it can't just be, here's a ton, here's a check, make it happen, get a ton of teachers teaching CS all across the country. You need to build a machine. You need yeah. to build a machine so that when five years later, those teachers decide to move on or do this or whatever, or, or get replaced or get, you got to have a place where there's a new group of teachers. So this all st- stems to, well, as you have, pre-service programs, people training folks to come from undergrad spaces to get a master's and go into teaching. They need to be learning about CS. They need mm-hmm. to have that option there. Then that doesn't even happen. So there's a ton of things that I say broken about the machine to, that, that's, that's going to be able to generate a healthy number of teachers to be able to, to fill in the spots. As people retire, as people decide this isn't for them, whatever that is, you got to bring that in there. And that has to be diverse. You can't have teachers that don't look like their students. You got to have it come from that community. So it, it's a ton of things we've got to do, and many of us are moving, you know, at committees and, and in groups, and I'm part of the CS for California group. So how, how, how can we move it? But if you look at the data, the data dump on, on, on just California in particular, there's just so many areas you can just circle and say, there's not a single CS teacher in that whole area. How many yeah. students will, you know, so we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> so it's yeah. less about beauty and joy. It's more about how, how far we got to go, how far we've done, you know, the reflection, how, how far we've come in the last 15 years proud of that but don't stop <laughs> you yeah. can't stop there we just got a, a ton of work to, ahead it's really what to you what to you could you name one if i asked what feels like the next highest priority to you personally yeah 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 no that's that's a great follow up question um i look to small windows of success brenda wilkerson was in the chicago public school district and she said look you can't just say look please offer a class because if you offer a class a lot of kids that you want to reach aren't going to take the class she said the only way you get cs into everybody's you know into everybody's uh, schedule is you mandate it that's what i was saying before this whole tension between mm-hmm. mandating and kind of letting it be take it if you like it and then so brenda had tremendous success in the chick and when i when i when we um i was the conference coordinator for co-coordinator with Tiffany Barnes, amazing Tiffany Barnes for the special interest group in computer science education, SIGC conference. We said, we got to bring Brenda in, you know, to, to talk about this. It was, it was amazing. So we really wanted to highlight that amazing work and learning from that, you know, as we're, we're looking at, do, should we mandate in California? That's a conversation we're having there. And we're hoping to move to that, to that level. Well, if you're so far from being able to even have a single teacher in every school, how do you do this? Hmm. You've got to be able to have it. It's got to come from money. It's got to be, it's got to be, can't be an unfunded mandate. Go mandate it. You know, go, everybody has to have a C, has CS in their program before they can graduate, but then we're not going to provide the teachers. That doesn't make any sense. So no. you've got to have that backed up by a ton of funding and a ton of who all the folks who believe 
in it have to continue to push. That means not only does it have the governor who writes a check, you know, the president who writes a check and, and puts money forward. You've got to have folks who all believe in the initiative, all believe in the value of this. And here's the here's the challenge. Zero sum. You've got computer science trying to force its way into our already packed curriculum. You've got data science coming in. You've got engineering. You've got a lot of folks who who believe that their course needs to be mandated, it needs to be into that. And so it's hmm. squeezing that into that. So I don't have an easy answer for that of how we find time for this. Um, I just know that that is the thing that will work. That is the thing that has been shown to work. Chicago Public School District was remarkable in their success. I would love to see if that's the thing it takes. You know, for a while when when there was a big movement, it was like, how do we get the White House to say it, right? How do we get the White House right. to say this is an important thing? And, and a lot of folks contributed to, to, to the to the talking points that you know it was computer science for the first time mentioned in the in the in the state of the union address you know 10 years ago or so that was like oh my god i can't believe they talked about computer science instead like we finally mm-hmm. got that message across but but if we if we look back we've got to mandate it that's the you know we got to fund it we got to mandate it, we got to bring up a whole we got to as i mentioned a lot of things we've got to do to to bring in more teachers into the pool a more diverse set of teachers to know that the goal is Every single student should at least have an opportunity to, to find this as a possibility for them. It's fine. Take a course. If you never want to do it again, that's fine. But at least get a real authentic sense of, of I'll, I'll just use the word, the fun, the beauty and the joy in computing. Yep. Um, so, so one way I think some people see organizing the chaos of and and I will say the imprecise, <laughs> imprecise or or non scientific chaos of this thing is the most important thing to mandate right now. Whether it's data science, computer science, engineering, um, one way to organize that, some people would argue, is what what industry says is most important next. So like, where are the jobs? Um, and we've seen this a little bit happen with CS where, where, you know, the mandating CS, you talked about the tension between beauty and joy and mandating CS. And, and I would say on the, the mandating tension side becomes industry's desire to tell a story that says, if you get involved in CS, it's going to connect you to jobs, right? And it's sort of been hooked into this pipeline narrative as, as though that's, that's the driver. And so I, I just wanted to ask you how, how you feel about that, that the movement in some ways has been co-opted to that, the, the pipeline narrative. Um, and does it do service to what you're describing as, as really organizing around what matters or, or do you think we need to back off of that? Uh, it's delightful, and and um, it's interesting because it 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 uh, it speaks to messaging. Because <clears throat> this is I'm, I'm going to go back 15 years. We're trying to make the case that CS is important, and what you often do is you you reflect on who the listener is going to be, and if the message to that listener is more effective by talking about the job need, mm. and that often broadly broadly speaking that often is kind of a conservative voice it's it's a little bit like how how a group of folks who really care about business entities you know first and foremost how they'll listen best is 
let's talk about the fact that the U.S. has to be competitive and we've mm. got to da 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 da. And so then if you're looking at a kind of a more, I say, progressive voice, it is social movement. It is, is about is about equities, about social justice. So it it isn't so much co-opting. It is both of those might be true that <laughs> it is a, a social mover and and great for people in the spirit of CS. Like it's a good mm. thing for people to learn. It's good for people to learn about the classics, you know, to read. Right. So you could either say this is kind of a, a, for a well-rounded person in tomorrow's society, they should know this. That's A. Or this is a great mover to allow for a socioeconomic uh, you know, movement. Or this is going to really have and shore up some deficiencies in the global space, both for businesses locally, but also in the in the in the global space of we don't want all the future apps to be written by some people outside of our country or something. You know, that kind of the the, the, the you know is the rah-rah USA kind of space of that. So as we're, as you're thinking about this, it's less about co-opted. It's more about there might all be true mm. that CS is great and CS is good for everybody. And CS is going to be important for helping our own workforce. And, you know, for a long time, this is by the way, 15 years ago, Google, Google and Facebook couldn't hire enough people. They wanted to grow faster than they could because they weren't enough qualified above the bar above a certain threshold they weren't enough people coming out of school they just weren't um and so what they hear they would hear stories they would find a smart physics student and teach them computing rather than have a cs student who was ready to go and so there'd be kind of some some backfilling to teach them some more cs to make them ready so they were saying we knew people we and we were seeing you know the growth of silicon valley the growth of that space i'm sitting right here you know miles away from silicon valley i can i could watch it happen so that it, it's less about a co-opting more about they're all true and you really work with the folks who need to hear a particular message to be able to convince them to write the check to make some initiative to have some outreach to do whatever you're doing to get cs in in in, in more spaces um now let's step back let's look at today's new york times let's look at today's wall street journal the folks aren't hiring um yeah. it's it's a hard time this is probably the first tapering off of of just uh insatiable need for talent that i've seen for the last 15 years it was a good run <laughs> it's a good run right I've, I, you know I, many of my uh, of my undergrads you know if you didn't get a first offer you got a second you got a third like it was they just continued to to fill those spots and, and it was great to kind of be part of that as i say we, we teach a lot of students at scale at berkeley so it's been it's, it's been great to be part of that and share and sharing the success of my students and it's now a very hard time for students who are thinking like, wow, should I just go to grad school and kind of wait, yeah. wait it out a little bit? What are we looking at? Is this the next big recession? Um, so maybe one of those arguments is a little less effective. Um, there is a question, it's a meta question. What happens if everybody falls in love with CS? Right. right? What, do we have enough room? We don't have capa enough capacity at Berkeley. We certainly have a lot of capacity in, in, in a lot of other schools, but we are way over capacity in terms of the number of people who want to take CS at Berkeley, the number of spots we have to offer them. Mm -hmm. So, so we don't have capacity really, but a lot of other folks do have capacity and, you know, are closing some after, after the pandemic, we, you know, we, we let some lecturers go, wait, what you mean? Don't have enough students, right? We don't have enough students at the two-year college level at some smaller four-year school. So there is capacity, I think in the system, but a couple of folks, a couple of the, of the, of the folks are definitely at capacity now. So I think there was a meta question, like what happens when we're all mm -hmm. maxed out? Um, should we keep advocating for this? I'd say, sure. Maybe you don't have to be a major, but I think learning some CS, I mean, let's argue. 
find me a career that's not going to involve some computing going forward. Maybe there are some, maybe there's some manual labor stuff, right? You know, gardener or something. I don't know. Somebody mm-hmm. who's just really working with their hands and, you know, is doing a beautiful, you know, doing God's work, but ne- doesn't necessarily need a computer a priest. I'm you know, thinking so, but I think a ton of jobs are going to bring computing in and the whole AI thing, there's all, I'm sure you're going to, you're going to have a lot of the next year. You're going to be talking about where AI comes in. It might not be programming anymore. It might be, t- you know, typing the right prompt. <laughs> right. <laughs> the future of using. It's a fascinating new world, right? It's a very right. exciting new world. But, but I think to, to the point of, of these messages, even though one might be not as effective anymore because you know Google's not hiring and having a hiring freeze, I, I still think that that's that that might be just a correction, right? Mm-hmm. They might have hired too many in the last three or four years. I think the growth is going to be continuing. I think the information we're in the information age. I can't see that growth. There are going to be jobs ten years from now we can't even imagine today. Like prompt engineer is is a job. I'm sure the last six months we came up with and the, that like that, right? Oh. I mean, metaverse engine, you know, whatever. So my point is there are jobs out there that we, we can't even realize today and we have to prepare our students for that as much as we can. I think this is a temporary slowdown. I think it's going to continue. So yeah. I would say, you know, don't stop the train. Don't stop the CS for all train. Um, continue to continue to try to reach access and try to, try to continue to try to provide access to the kids in K-12 so they can get a taste of that and maybe decide this is for them. So tell me, let's get to grades for a second. And... You at the head of this interview said that what I didn't realize was how much I had been doing wrong. Um, and I know that grades is, is an area of passion for you right now. Tell me about that. How did this, yeah. how did this emerge as an aha for you? And then, and then how are you experimenting in classes and in dialogue with other institutions about what it means to change what we've been doing for so long? Sure. Thank you. That's a great, that's a great start. It all comes from professional development. I was doing my thing. As I said, 15 years, I've been part of the CS, you know, 10 K CS for all movement really continued to be, to be pushed at. And so here's, here's, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story. Um, for, for 15 years ish, I've been trying to write interesting curriculum and working with the team to try to find great teachers and prepare them well with that curriculum trying to work with the folks who teach block-based programming. We use the SNAP programming language, which is wonderfully, it uh, comes from scratch. It's really beautiful. It's elegant. It doesn't have mm. syntax errors. So you have a great language. You have a great curriculum. You've got a great teacher. You try to go to a school that didn't have it. You try to, you know, fund the teacher well. You try to do everything you can to do this. And here's a, ready for the, ready for the mic to drop? And then at the end of the day, you give a kid a C. And what does that tell the kid? What does that tell the 15-year-old kid, 16-year-old kid? says the CS isn't for you. That's what they say. They say CS isn't for you. Sorry. Crazy. Crazy. That's what I was doing wrong. I was thinking, and by the way, I haven't had a curve in my life. I've never had a curved policy where, you know, you got to be the top 10% to get in. I've never done that. I've had a, I've had a, a you know, that, that, um, it's called norm reference grading. How, how do you compare to the norm, right? Your A is only because you're the top 10%. Hmm. I've always done criterion reference grading where, you know, I tell you how the points are available forever. So forever I've done that, yet students are still getting a C. And I say, you know, semester ended, the year ended, you got a C, let's move on. Good luck on the next thing. And so that what was that was the issue that was, that was the, the fault. I was doing it in right in terms of criterion reference grading. Here's what the bar is. I post on the wall. This is what it takes to get the A. What I didn't realize is if a student doesn't 
get it by that. And by the way, I also had clobbered exams where, you know, as long as you get at the end, if you, if you bomb the first two midterms and you get, you ace the final, then you ace the midterms that, you know, you clobber the grade. I've had that policy mm. forever. So I've had the idea that you could, you know, show proficiency or mastery, like you use the word proficiency by the end. And your, your exam grades show that. What I didn't realize was, could you have more leniency in deadlines throughout the semester? And could you even have more leniency at the deadline for the end of the class? That's what I was doing wrong. I was still giving C's rather than saying, you know what? You got a C based on the bar. And, and I'm not against um, having very explicit uh, um, rubrics of what it takes to get grades and get scores and points. Mm -hmm. Nothing was ever hidden. It wasn't like, well, I got a hidden thing. And if you happen to make me happy with your essay, never. I've always made that public. So I'm trying to do all the things right. Mm -hmm. But what I was doing wrong is I was saying, because I didn't think about, say, having an auto grader, I had a, a set of wonderful manual uh, students who work with me who'd manually grade it. They were my, they called readers at Berkeley. So I had these readers who have to launch on, I have, you know, 250 Project one, there's a piece of code, right? So I write some, write some code to do some, do some challenge. And I had 250 submissions and I got to have these readers start to grade them. So there was a hard deadline. If it's due, if you know, I'd say, I give you three slip days this is what I used to do. So on Friday it's due and you have these three coins you could use to kind of add more time to mm. the deadline. And you, but you only have three coins over the whole year because I've got to have these guys. So, okay, that means I can't start grading until three days later because some student might have wanted to use all three coins for that day. What happens if it's after the third, that third day? If they use all three coins after the third day, it's like you lose points, 50% off. Six, if, it, if it's two days late, it's 25% off. You know, it's like it continues to, to the possible maximum score continues to, to attenuate. Hmm. That's crazy. That, what happens if that student got sick or needs some more? Like, Yes, if they emailed me, they would now, maybe I would, but that's crazy. So the, the whole idea that you have these hard deadlines and there's no flexibility in both. A, life gets in the way. You got sick. Something would happen with your family. You lost a job. Somebody robbed your, I have a student who had their, their car broken into. You've got a lot of things that just happen in life. You got a big commute. You got other things that are going on that may make, they may be the reason you didn't make that deadline. Mm. And it shouldn't be that you don't have these three coins. Why not just let the deadline slip to whatever you need? It should I turn the question. Well, how much time do you need? Well, I think I can do it in a week. Fine. That's your new deadline, a week. So the, to make that happen, you remove the human element of the humans grading it and write an auto grader. You know, we're in CS. So this is a little easier in this field than it is in other fields to do what I'm trying to, what I'm arguing. But I was able to write an auto grader. That means the code itself knew when you were getting it right or wrong. And the students could just keep working until the auto grader says 100%. Hmm. There was no reason. There's no more human in that loop. So why did I have that deadline anymore? And so that is the aha. The aha is remove humans from the loop of grading. And now that assignment has natural flexibility. There is a natural pace. You know, we recommend we do, it takes two weeks to do. If you need three weeks, you can have it. You need three and a half weeks, you can have it. Whatever. And so the point is it's out there for you to, to rock on and keep polishing until you find you're happy and you're done with them. So it's like putting the control back in the hands of the student to do this. Okay. So exams. Yeah. I have to have an exam initiative, which is rather than you get one shot in an exam, that, that exam is like, 
It's a first try. It's like a draft exam. Mm -hmm. So you take an exam and you get everything right except the last question. And normally you just can't repair that last question. I give you the same exam next week with different questions, same topics. So if you had 10 topics, same 10 topics, but different problems. And you try it again. And if your score on question 10 is better than that, it's the score. You got it. You showed proficiency. So it's a, it's a fundamental change. Again, I was mostly doing criterion reference grading, but it's a fundamental change from you get one shot in exam to get two shots, three shots, four shots, n shots in exam. It's a, it's a change from the deadline is here. It's Friday. Maybe you give you a little bit of wiggle to three days. No, it is whatever you need. I'm going to be there for you. It's a, it's a fundamental change of the course to say, I'm going to provide every structure to say, I'm not touching the A bar and the B bar. It's the same. I'm not changing what that means. I'm mm -hmm. not trying to say, don't do grades. I'm saying there is a standard. You have to, if you want that standard there, but I'm going to provide, I'm going to remove every obstacle that prevents you from getting the grade that you want. If you only care about a B and you're willing to work for that, fine. But you were getting a C, so you're willing to work hard to get your B, fine. You get a B handshake at the end of the year. And if it, here's the thing, and here's the part that's a little bit controversial. What happens if it stretches past the end of the semester? Why not let them keep working on it? Again, they're just working with an auto grader and a computer. They can keep working to finally finish that project one that was causing that C to be a C. They finally finish it a day after the, the semester was done. Why not allow them to get the B? So why not allow them to keep working past the semester if they needed time? If that's finally the time where the other things in their life kind of slowed down. They finally had time over the break. Usually there's breaks between semesters. We got a winter break. We got a summer break. Why couldn't they keep working on that course and then knock out the things they didn't do well? And if so, they want, take next semester's exams. Like I write new exams every semester. Come back next semester and then take that exam. It's a whole new set of exams. Like I only had four this week. Now that's the fifth exam next semester. Take the fifth. You finally got that idea, question 10. Boom, I should give you credit. Right. So, so it's, it's a almost, whole new perspective. Almost like I could, um, like we have the concept of auditing a class, but what about the idea of like, if I've taken the class and let's say I got a C, um, I can audit the exam in perpetuity as long as I'm, I'm, I graduate from the university, like even beyond graduation, I can come back and audit the exam and in, increase my grade. That's the part that's a little controversial. You, are, you know, what does that mean for a transcript anymore? Does a transcript right. record right. what it was at the snapshot of the end of the course? Right. Or, does, or does a transcript reflect what you know now? Mm -hmm. Like imagine a senior going back and finally learning recursion, one of the topics in CS. Right. And finally learning it as, as a senior, then going back and taking their freshman exam and showing that they know it. Shouldn't their transcript say that they're A-level at recursion? It's almost like if the transcript is what you know. It's like your list of your competencies, your mm -hmm. skills in there. You are an A student. You finally got it. You weren't until that moment, but you finally were. Why can't your transcript record that? Why does it have to be a snapshot in time? It's a whole new perspective of what a transcript means anymore. Um, but it's, always, it's like, is it a living, breathing document? If it's a living, breathing document, as you know, like, imagine a Google Docs of your transcript. And as you finally got it, you go back to the Google Docs and make it live. It says like that grade now says it's an A because you actually are an A student. Right. It's, that's, that's the principle of this grading. And by the way, I didn't mention and honor the person who got me started. College engineering at UC Berkeley had a set of PD and they brought in Joe Feldman who wrote a book, Grading for Equity. This is all about learning that, spending it, being kind of one of the evangelists of this, you know, realizing I was doing it wrong, really having a, a, an enlightened sense that this book and, and the PD that I was, you know, I was afforded allowed me to see and that I've been doing it wrong and that's the thing I've been doing wrong. Why not allow students to have more time? If life gets in the way, that's the issue. So 
Two, two, if I can, I'm going to say these back to you and just to check my own comprehension. I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase what I heard. I think you say one is, um, help humans who are learners, uh, break time constructs that previously were a measure of how smart you are. Mm -hmm. That was number one. Number two was find ways to celebrate persistence, right? So uh, you talked earlier and I put a big exclamation point in my notes. You said clobber testing, which mm -hmm. I have never heard that phrase, but I love it. I think just because the word clobber is so fun to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but things like clobber te testing where, you know, one, uh, an ace would, would knock out a previous attempt that wasn't so hot. Mm -hmm. What's, so A, does that sound, Am I paraphrasing yeah, right? And that's right. In fact, it's even more succinct and, 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 and elegant, which is rather than thinking of the experience as fixed time, variable learning. Fixed time says you got a semester. Variable learning says you got A through F grades. Mm. It is fixed learning, variable time. It says, I don't care. It's, it's like the Khan Academy model. I don't care how long it's going to take you to get that grade, get the B that you want. It's not mm. about me telling you, you got to get the A. Some people said, don't call it A's for all because it means everybody has to get it. No, everybody gets the grade they want. There's a probably better word to say, you get the grade you want. I'm going to remove all the obstacles to prevent that from happening, right. including the obstacle of time. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's about, it's about, self-paced learning, autodidactic, it's hard. It's like, well, how does the student manage it? Let's say they, in every single course they take that, that fall, their freshman year, and every one of them, they want to get a higher grade than they have. How do they, how do they have time and to graduate in four years? How do you make time in university? Do they now take eight years to graduate? So there's a lot of details to be worked out. I'm thinking maybe it's only one course they need a couple, and they just spend the break just right. working on the thing that they never got. Oh, I finally got that puzzle. Boom, go back in there and put that grade in the system. Right. It's about resiliency. It's about empathy. It's about letting students who might have things that go wrong Wrong. You should see how many. I've, I asked my students that I give a survey. How did you do? Did you need any extra time? And they wrote unbelievably powerful stories about how much struggle and trauma they were all having throughout the semester from one thing or the other. And that this new set of policies was the first they'd ever heard of that allowed for leniency, that allowed for that to be okay. It's okay to have life happen and then need a little bit more time for that. So almost nobody allows that much leniency. It's really like this is, you know, as I talk to other folks, like, boy, we can't do that. Like people are saying because of the structure, the institutional structure, you just can't have that much flexibility. And I'm trying to push and bend as much as I can. I'm kind of like the Hulk. I'm mm -hmm. breaking things in all, you know, my shirt's ripping in all these ways because <laughs> it pushes against a lot of the things that we kind of think are frozen. I'm trying to break those things to say, if you allow, allow a student to get what they want, it might take them more time for a particular project or a particular course. You should allow that to happen if you can. Yeah. And that's hard to do. It's hard. It's hard to have to write five. I have four exams now in the queue. It's hard to write four consecutive exams, but you got it. If you have willing to, if the instructor is willing to put in the work for it to do that, it's hard to write autograders for every assignment. It doesn't work for every field, right? It's easy for computer science to write yeah. autograders, harder for other fields. How would you do this in literature, right? Yeah. By the way, this doesn't come from K-12 forever. My kid has been coming to school saying, look, I got an essay, has red marks. Teacher says, rewrite it and submit it for the full credit. Like that's has been known for years. This yeah. idea of you get resiliency, I'm going to correct you. And then if you correct it, you get full points. That's not my idea. It's just not in higher ed. That does not exist in higher ed as much. Right. Right. So let's see if we can shatter the way that we have these fixed time mindsets without resiliency, without empathy, kind of change that, that whole model. So we, I have, I have only a minute left um, but I have two questions left. 
the the first question is in in brief what recommendations what recommendations should we give to folks who are interested in wanting to reform grading policies and specifically i'm looking for like what should people like you mentioned grading for equity um what else should people have a look at yeah yeah i would say read the book read grading for equity talk to your colleagues about what's possible Think about, as I said, CS is easy because we could write auto graders, but think about other ways that you can allow for flexibility in deadlines, flexibility in situations to, to not be, I say, like, don't be a stickler for the deadline was here because it was, it was there for me and it worked for me. A lot of students have a lot more situations going on than we realize. Mm -hmm. And having an open space for my students to say, did this help you and why? They all of a sudden it was outpouring of the things they were struggling with. I had never seen before. Do I mean, you think 10 years ago they weren't struggling with a similar set of things? But I was never asking. So ask the student what they're what could you could more time help you? And if there's a way for you, any way for you to allow for that resiliency, to allow the student to work to get that grade, do it. Like be less of a, you know, a hard ass. Don't be a hard ass on that deadline. Just say, like, you know what, let me be, let me be more flexible for that and let you submit it away. Yes, it's going to mean that. I went through all the essays and yours is the one that's later, but do the work to, to build up multiple exams. Let them have multiple chances to do that in, in as much as you can. Mm. Some things won't break. If you can't, if you, there's no way your institution will let you, you know, upgrade a grade to a B if once this, once the deadline is in, once the grade is submitted, I get it, but why not allow for it? Why doesn't the SAT allow for multiple attempts on the same exam? They're like, here's like, you know, like you do in a way you can take the SAT multiple times, but you know, I see AP courses and I, I love that space, but how many times do people not finish the exam? That's the part of the time thing. Why can't you just allow more time for that? It isn't about time. Some people take exams slower. So it's about thinking about the, the borders and, and the framework that you live within and seeing why do they exist and really question, calling those into question and really thinking about equitable outcomes that you might get because of changing grading policies. My last question, Dan, is whether you'll come back and – can we spend more time? I feel like we only scratched the surface and uh, this was a really fun conversation for me. And so I hope you'll make some time because I would love to continue down this road and, and to what extent I, you know, the, the dialogue can be helpful at teasing out some of these things that you may have been doing for years, but now are, are trying to put some more structure uh, to and, and share out in the kind of way that you have, other areas of work, I would, I would love to be a help in that in whatever way I can, but I can't thank you enough for spending time with me. And, uh, I think people are going to get a ton from the conversation. So thank you. Well, I mean, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for the opportunity to share this. I, I, as I said, I'm trying to be an evangelist of this. I, I think I found religion. I found the new the way. <laughs> I, you know, I wish I could have told, I wish I could listen to this 23 years ago when I took my, took my first teaching job. Um, I, I think there continue to grow, you know, continue to read, continue to listen to podcasts and to continue to listen to, to folks who have things to say about how to correct it. And don't, I, I kind of inherited the grading structure from the people who taught it before me and thought that I couldn't change it. It's, it's about questioning and wait, it's like, my, my mom used to have a button question authority. It's about questioning authority and thinking mm. about for our students benefits, could we allow for more flexible learning opportunities? Um, and yes, I would love to come back to talk about it because there are subtleties of incentive structures. We had a pilot in the fall. We have a pilot and we're still, we're still piloting this new initiative. I'm pretty excited about this A's for all. But if you have no deadlines, 
students don't get started at all. So there's a little bit of knowing that that happens, that can happen. And how do you keep a fire under them to keep working if you allow for that? If you don't, if, if all the other classes they're taking have deadlines and you don't, guess what? They prioritize those classes and deprioritize yours and never get to yours. It's yeah. like yours becomes the sock drawer that they never organize. So how do you have that messaging so that students know that there are some recommended paces? And if you're not at the pace, it's okay. How do you allow for that disconnection to like jump off the bus? There was a pace. The bus was the pace. You jumped off the bus. But how do you stay with a cohort to continue to work? All that is something we can dig into in another conversation. So, yes, the answer is an immediate yes. I'd love to come back and continue to have this Outstanding. conversation. Dan, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure. It's great. Thanks again. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.